0: Okay, you say we are, we must be, unless we're not. Yes, we're live everywhere Facebook, Facebook, Audio, cliffside.org, slash live, everywhere. Well, how about that? As if I would know. Okay, well, uh, we're, before we get started, just a couple of things. Uh, a while back, you might have remembered, I put up MOND, M-O-N-D. Yeah. And lately, what's interesting to me is that... Uh, not that I had any impact, but the physics community is beginning to come out and say, "Listen, the situation has changed on dark matter." And I'm beginning to find more papers and more speakers beginning to say, "As uh, that, uh, hold it, dark matter—they thought might be a particle. No particle has ever been discovered with respect to dark matter. They—they they can't handle the uh, the galaxy cluster velocity issue." Um, they can't, the stars with respect to the center of the galaxies, all of these different issues have come up and they cannot solve it with dark matter. And so they're beginning to say, well, wait a minute, maybe we have misunderstood Newtonian dynamics or, or with modified Newtonian dynamics with respect to gravity. And they're beginning to recognize, wait a minute, we have condensed matter physics as opposed to just regular physics now. So that is a big thing. You take away their their dark energy and their dark matter, and they are left with a theological position, which I find fantastic. uh, It took them a while, but some people have begun to say, as I said, forget it. This isn't going to happen. And I have a letter here from somebody. I have to put it in the right place or I'll forget it. Where is it? Somewhere in there. I'll remember it when the time comes. Probably not. Okay, May the 2nd. Oh, oh, I also want to talk about India and the extraordinary explosion of COVID in India right now. India is particularly difficult because they have a high level of diabetes in that country. They have uh, very, very low vitamin D. They're all a high level of vitamin D deficiency and zinc deficiency. And they are obviously very concentrated. So they're particularly vulnerable to this, uh, this highly transmissible disease. So we can't really pay attention to what's going there and apply it to the United States or maybe even to some parts of Europe. But if it keeps going the way it is, it's going to destabilize India. And if India is destabilized and they begin to feel vulnerable, they have an enemy over there that is China, an absolute bitter enemy. And and I I see the potential for geopolitical turmoil in that area. Those are two huge economies that the United States is uh, intrinsically uh, co-opted. I would say is the actual word, but certainly, India controls so much of our technical support, and Canada. I'm sorry, China controls mass amounts of our debt, and most of our our. uh, Goods now in this country, as far as I can tell, have been uh, assumed by Canada. Because I only, I only shop in places that are I can afford, so that limits me to Walmart. And where else? That's about it. Mm-hmm. Costco sometimes. I recognize the politics of both are not compatible with mine, but you do what you have to do to make it. In any event, if India collapses economically because of this kind of biological... Pressure, disease pressure, pandemic pressure in China uh, is sees an opportunity and both of them get impacted and the world will explode, I believe, economically. We'll see if that's true, but certainly something to, to look at. I'm fascinated by the people that are paying attention to uh, India's difficulties and what it might mean. Hey, so enough of that. May the 2nd, 2021, lecture discussion number 136 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. Joel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings 13. I'm sorry, 2 Kings 23, 1 Kings 13. Hey, take these off so that I can read what I wrote. Last week, we concluded with the unnamed Anna question. Let me go over these questions really fast. We had Sherman's uh, concern about Goliath called Goliath, why the cross was on top of the head of Goliath. We have the unnamed Anna that we cannot name because she's unnamed Anna. And she wanted to talk about consciousness. She not, didn't really mean, know that. But that's her, the, the uh, crux of her question. We had Valerie. She got involved in For Your Salvation, or For Your Sake, there is dust involved. And, uh, and the angelic realm, uh, of course. And then uh, this other person's question, whoever that might be, his name, name uh, well, his initials are Steve. Christ on the cross, Hebrews 2, uh, 10 through 18. All of this is the same thing, as I've said before. And all of it ends up at Hebrews ten or 2, 10 through 18. Okay, so we concluded last week with the unnamed Anna's question about the visuality of the soul, the spirit, the mind, or consciousness. She wanted to know, can we see consciousness? Have we ever been able to see it? Because that's essentially the breath of life. The breath of the spirit of life is our consciousness, our memory, our personhood, everything that is inside of us that we are identified as is a spiritual component and not a physical component, though we have a physical manifestation. And there's this fantastic interconnection between the mind and the brain. But anyway, effectively, her concern was the barrier. So she said, why can't we see our consciousness? And so that is a barrier. Because I'm saying that it is intentional. There is a barrier. Let me put it another way. I'm going to say it's a veil or a curtain that has been placed between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Uh, and she and she, was, she was concerned about that. if you want to think of them that way, I think it's perfectly appropriate. And again, I think the veil has been intentionally installed by him who gave the breath of the spirit of life. So he has done this on purpose. Genesis 7.22 is the breath of the spirit of life. And he made it so you cannot see it. And to whom the, the breath of life returns. So he He is the one that gave the spirit of life. And it's to him, obviously, whom the breath of life returns. That's Genesis two seven, Ecclesiastes 12.7. And obviously, so let me get rid of this. I just wanted to... Re- put those on the board I've got, I'm going to need the room today so that you know where we were so obviously the veil which divides hides the holy of holies when I say veil you should go immediately to the mosaic tabernacle or the solomonic temple or the, even the herodian temple and you can see the veil is there the most holy of holies is uh, divides there so, it divide the most holy from the tabernacle. you call it the holy of holies or the most holy. That's a, a Exodus uh, 26, 31 through 34. So, um, so, that's our veil. And if you read that, you're going to notice that on the veil are angels. And not just any angels, specifically cherubim. They're embroidered. In the veil, this artistic design, that's the first thing to consider when you get this to this subject. A lot of people don't understand, and I get it, they think the cherubim are on the veil because they are on the Ark of the Covenant, but I disagree with that. They are on the veil because they are intended to be on the veil. It's very important that they're on the veil, that you recognize the relationship between the cherubim and the veil. Now, they may look the same as the design. I've never seen the veil. It was torn apart, of course, from the cross. That's another subject in a minute. But just consider the fact this artistic design of the cherubim is the first thing that you will see if we ever get to see the veil that was there in the temple, in the tabernacle, separating the Most Holy from the tabernacle. Materially, the meanings of the veil and its rending are its tearing, if you will. The veil is torn from the cross. The cross tears the veil. Now, the most holy is then revealed. You can see inside of the most holy or the holy of holies. For the first time, everyone could see because that veil was ripped from top to bottom. Again, the cause was the death of Christ, Matthew 27, 51 through 54. That causes the tearing of the veil. As you know, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. But the collectivity of the veil is largely unknown. In other words, the sum of the veil is an extensive subject. So, let me put all of that on the board. I have Genesis 7.22. I have Genesis to 7 I have obviously Exodus 26 31 through 34 Matthew I have uh, Ecclesiastes 127 uh, let me make, get to make sure I have them all uh, Second Kings 617 That gets me into the veil all of those are important. This obviously tells me I have a veil, and then this tells me why I have a veil. And that's not even that's just barely a shallow beginning. Second Kings six seventeen, as you might know, is Elisha's prayer. What does he say there? That's so important to the veil. Lord, I pray his eyes be opened that he may see. What is that subject about? Elisha is with a young man. And they are surrounded by Syrian arms, army, Armor the Syrian armor, army. Come on. Where's my water? And the young man is fearful. And Elisha said, Lord, I pray that his eyes be opened that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. So I have chariots of fire and I might have, very likely I do have, horses of fire. A lot of people say, well the chariots were on fire and the horses were just normal horses. But it could be that it's horses and chariots of fire. All of them fire. Horses of fire. So we'll get to that uh, eventually. The curtain between the physical and the spiritual, obviously at 617 of Second Kings, was, was withdrawn, wasn't it? Because the, Elijah could always see. He is a portrayal of the omniscience of Christ. But this young man also got to see. So the angelic army is uncovered. So again, the veil, gone. For a brief moment, for one person. And if we had time, and we never have enough time here, I would devote that time that we never have to gathering everywhere in the scripture that involves engages the scene of the spiritual reality. Genesis 19, for example. I have two angels come to Abraham. I have two angels that are with Lot. So I have the two angels that take Lot and his wife and the two daughters by the hand. That's one example of this confluence of the spiritual and the physical, or the spiritual and the human, or the angelic and the human. Genesis 6, obviously another. Jude 6, the angels who left their heavenly estate. Hebrews thirteen two, some have entertained angels unaware. Uh, Luke 111, Luke 1:19, 1, Gabriel and Zacharias Luke 2:13 job 1, job 2. those are all places really quick examples Gabriel and Daniel and Daniel 8:15 through 16. those are places where we see the veil is is uh, traversed. My point is, yea, a point already the veil between the angelic realm and the human realm has been navigated. It has been removed throughout history. It is not incidental that Elijah ascended into the pillar of cloud by means of a chariot of fire and again horses of fire. Second 2 Kings 2.11 So, if, I, if I'm Elisha, 2 Kings 6.17, and I see chariots and horses of fire, and we'll get to that again, but I just, I'm going to keep saying horses of fire, just because it's, it's something that I want you to recognize as a possibility, but I have 2 Kings 6.17, and I have 2 Kings 2.11, it's obviously the same thing, in the sense that this is present here, and this is present here. Of course, again, the question uh, becomes quickly what is a horse of fire? If they, if they are in fact there. With that said, the unnamed Anna wanted to know why, why was there an, this installation of the veil in the first place? It's called the why of the veil. So all of this is to say the why of the veil. We have a veil. We know we have a veil. Why do we have a veil? Why is it sometimes the veil is removed? What circumstance made it necessary to remove the veil? Why was it necessary for Daniel to see Gabriel? Why was it necessary for Gabriel and Zacharias to to see Gabriel? Why was it necessary uh, for the young man to see the entire angelic host? We don't know how many there were, but there were um, there's a multitude. It's an incredible number. Why was that a reason that these people got to see through into the, uh, the angelic realm? Obviously, unnamed Anna wants to see this. Uh, how excited would we all be to see it? We would all be excited to see it, right? Ultimately, the seeing of Christ. He is the angel of the Lord, right? He is the angel. It's the Lord God. It is the angel of the Lord God, and it is the spirit of the Lord God. Yes, ma'am. We all have a little bit of Thomas in it. We would love to, we would love to see it. Thomas got a break. But again, there's it's a... not because we doubt. We just love to see it. Yeah, absolutely right. If you didn't hear, her, she said it's not because she doubts. It's just that she wants to see it. Yes. It's an incredible thing. But again, why do we have this curtain between these two realms? We'll get to that and as again. I almost gave it away there, but I stopped myself. Let's take some water so that I don't make that mistake again. Now, as is my modality, I have renovated the unnamed Anna's question. Extrapolated would would be the mathematical statement or the mathematical process that I've done. Uh, Once again, I blurred it and some might suggest that I distorted the question uh, of Anna well past uh, recognizability. And unrecognizability, as you know, is defined as the quality or state of being mostly or completely obliterated. So I do that. You give me a question and I make it so you don't even recognize your own question. And I'm sure that's happening to all these people. I didn't ask that. I didn't ask that. What do you mean? But you did. But you did. And that's okay. It's my way of having fun. Because I am, after all, called the what? The fun pastor by no one ever, ever. And it will never, ever happen. Anyway, talking about Anna, last week, if you remember, this topic of the unnamed Anna, uh, what if came. It's the what if path. What if is usually associated with the inverse. What I mean by that, I can sometimes find the why of the veil by introducing the reciprocal, which is pretty much where we ended last week at Lecture 135, asking two what-ifs. I'm I'm dealing with the, not why, so much. I'm dealing with what if. What would happen? Not why is the veil there, but what would happen if the veil was not there? Does that make sense? So what if there was no divide between the spiritual reality and the physical reality? That's going to occur. Look at the book of Revelation. They're great signs and wonders. What are those great signs and wonders that you wanted to see? Those will be angels making proclamations to the earth. You're going to hear them. You're going to see them. They're they're all over the place. The signs and wonders are extraordinary. That's why it's such a time of, of salvation. Again, that is back to question number four, which isn't on the board. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. So, What if there wasn't a veil? And this is companion to, why did God restrict humanity from seeing angels? That's the same question. What if there isn't a veil? But And then, of course, why did he do this? Or to return to the unnamed Anna's form, why can we not see our own consciousness? The mind, the spirit, the soul. We can't see that. And it's going to return to him who gave it with, with two angels. That's uh, Genesis 28. That's the ladder that we've been discussing. 28, 12 through 15. That's the ladder. That's also Lazarus and the rich man, right? Luke 16, 22. Lazarus is carried, and at that time that was the bosom of Abraham, but he was, you have two compartments in, in Sheol at the time. One of them was the bosom of Abraham, and the other one was torment. So, Lazarus was transmitted, or transferred, I guess, would be better, by two angels, Luke 16, 22, to promise. To the place of promise, that Christ emptied, of course. We'll get to that some other day, but not today. So, why... Can't we see that happen? How much, how much blessing would it be to watch your loved one die? And then see two angels grab him his consciousness and transport him? Again, that's this ladder that we've been talking about as well in Genesis 28. Why What are they doing on the ladder? That's not everything they're doing. They're on the ladder. They have many ministerial roles. One of those, of course, is transmission. Of the soul. Back to him who gave it. uh, As opposed to putting it in torments. Now we'll get into. How they get to torments some other day. We don't have time today. So. Remember now Valerie's question number three. Valerie wished to investigate the standing. Of the angelic realm. You see how they're Anna. Who can't be named. And Valerie are the same question. Valerie wanted to know. What is the standing of the angelic realm as it would apply to humanity? In other words, to whom is assigned the greater culpability? The angels or humanity. Uh, let's, Let's rephrase it this way. Who has the most accountability for the veil? The why of the veil again, right? Matthew 25, 41. is critical to this discussion. Matthew twenty five forty one indicates that the fallen angels are to receive the harshest condemnation. What is the harshest con- condemnation of Matthew 25, 41? It is the lake of fire. So I have two things now that I have to figure out. I've got the lake of fire and the why of the veil. The everlasting fire was originally prepared for whom? Satan and his angels. Mankind's included Revelation twenty, eleven through fifteen. Now here's where I was going to bring up Jennifer's question. Because Apparently Jennifer asked what I would call the regret question of Genesis six, six through seven. Hi Jennifer. I hope you're you're listening. Is she listening? She may be can't Okay. Well if you're not listening, Jennifer, then I'm not going to do it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Jennifer's regret, 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 Question: Genesis six seven. God says essentially, "I regret having made man. I am sorry for having made man." Um, and why does He say that? What is He talking about? It is he, oh, I made a mistake. Obviously, that's not true. He's omniscient. Omniscience disavows any possibility of a mistake. It's inconsistent. It's contradictory. Countermanding. So, he didn't make a mistake. So, what is he saying? He's saying the same thing in Genesis 6-7 that he said in at, at Gethsemane in, in Matthew 26. Same thing. He, he, yeah, I'm sorry, but you have chosen the lake of fire. Yeah. He weeps for the lost. I am sorry is weeping. You're absolutely right. But the records show that Terithithi figured that out before I said it, as opposed to say, Dave... Who may or may not exist, but yes, he's sorry for having to send for these people choosing to go to the lake of fire that was originally created for Satan and his angels. So it is exactly the same. That Genesis 6:6 6, 6, uh, through 7 is exactly the same as um, Matthew 26. That's the complement. So when you get those two together, the Gethsemane cup, let this cup pass. Because as soon as the cup passes, then that means the lake of fire, right? Even though the lake of fire is in Revelation 20:11 through 15. Mankind is included in the lake of fire. And God is weeping for those at the time of the flood, for how many of those people were doomed because they chose destruction. And it makes him really sad, gives him great regret. He's not regretting over making man. He's regretting the decisions that man makes that leads to their condemnation. And again, it makes it a triune verse. Uh, Gethsemane is a triune verse, and so is Genesis 6 six through 7. You have to know that's all three of the persons of the triune Godhead discuss, saying, I am sorry, I have regret. But yet there must be judgment, there must be holiness. Sin cannot be allowed to run uh, rampant and he will stop it. So again, mankind is included in the lake of fire with Satan and his angels. Revelation twenty eleven through 15. I should put that on there too. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Very important to this discussion of the veil and the lake of fire. Those who reject the extended hand of the salvation of Jesus Christ, those who refuse the blood of Christ, the blood covering, they're going to be added to the everlasting fire that was first brought into existence for Satan and his angels. Uh, Those who, the one third who followed, the one third who believed the lie of Satan, eventually all who perish. All who receive or choose the lie are the marks. If you want to think of it that way, that's the biggest element of the lie is the mark. Knowingly, fully, Knowing fully it is a lie, uh, they're going to go into the lake of fire. Revelation 14, 9-11. 9-11 makes it obvious. Can you see all of that? Am I in the way? Do I need to move this so that people can write all that down? If you can't see it, I hope you heard it. Revelation 14, 9-11 makes it clear that people knowingly choose the lie. It's a lie. They know it's a lie. They still take it. We have political parties that are doing that today. I'm going to, I'm going to be on my side, even though I know my side is completely corrupted. And, and I asked that question that, that I didn't choose the question. I mean, I didn't write the question. Can you govern a country you hate? The answer is obviously no. Can you save a can you save people you despise? Obviously no. Uh, you will see the Antichrist and Satan absolutely have contempt for everyone who takes the mark. Okay, to reframe the core of Valerie's question, what percentage of blame shall be accredited to Satan and his angels? And what then remains to be imputed to the ones who willfully accept the mark of the beast? Just to add that back in. Obviously, I've taken the reciprocal of Valerie's request. And then confined it to the tribulation. Right there is what I have done. So she has a broader view and a little bit different form, and I have now condensed it into the tribulation. The mathematical principle is nonetheless valid here. So what have you concluded? Who's to blame? Is it angels and man? Between angels and mankind, who's to blame the most? If you wish, who's going to get the harsher sentence? They both ultimately get the same sentence, but this is a tremendously difficult choice for God. But obviously not so much for mankind. They willfully take it and he weeps. Just to keep hammering in that in. But what did you conclude? 50-50? 60-40 angels? 70-30? 52.84391? 47.15609%? Do the math, it'll work. Use your phones. Whatever you decide, if you decide that the angels are sixty percent responsible for the lake of fire, uh, are there? Well, we, obviously it's made for them and and Satan, the Satan and the angels. But if you say that they are responsible for the veil, for example, uh, you're you have implications of that. You have to be careful with your proposition. Note that Christ, Matthew twenty six fifty two through fifty four, asks a question. It's a rhetorical question. It's also a rebuke. He's about to be crucified. He is in charge of his crucifixion. Never think otherwise. But he asks this question. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of chariots of fire and horses of fire? I can call down the entire angelic army. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? Matthew twenty-six fifty-two through fifty-four is a triune verse, just like Gethsemane is a triune verse. Just like when you just have to spot these things, you have to know that they're there. They all go back to Genesis one twenty-six, ultimately to, to Genesis one one. Matthew twenty-six fifty-two through fifty-four. That question is a triune verse. Again, so is Genesis six five through eight. Again, so is Matthew 26:39, the Gethsemane cup. Put them all together, Jennifer, and you will have your question answered. Anyway, I should point out that the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, is Christ Himself. That's His title. Jesus is the angel of the Lord, and in 2 Kings 19:35, the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So what's the obvious question? Also, Christ, uh, Revelation nineteen nineteen through twenty one. What does he do there? He slays the beast of the earth, the kings of the earth, and their armies who gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse. Oh, horse again! Revelation nineteen nineteen through twenty one. He destroys all of those armies. How many are there? Gather against him. There are millions. Clearly, the omnipotent God himself in the flesh does not need anything. He certainly does not need an angelic army. Why would he even suggest that he would call them down? Again, it's a rhetorical question. Omnipotence. He's omnipotent. Disqualifies words like help and need and support. And all the others, etc. So, I'll ask a rhetorical question now. Does the word of God need an angelic army To save him from death. There are at least two heretical words in my rhetorical question. (laughs) At least two. There might be five. Might be 500. Who can save Jesus Christ from death? Answer that question. Yeah. Just no one. No one can save Jesus Christ from death. No one did right why can you not save him from death and that's a triune question isn't it so whenever you go through the Bible you have to recognize the triunity of God Genesis 1.26 Again, this is, he made this announcement. Now, ultimately, it's Genesis 1-1, but for now, just look at where he said it aloud. When he starts to talk about why the way the Godhead is, and it's unimaginable. You talk about, uh, what can we understand about God? This is one thing that we will never understand, is his triunity. We know it's true, it's everywhere. He announces it to the angelic host after he's Genesis one twenty six. After he reveals the light of life, it's after he separated the darkness from the light. He booms. Tells them, I am triune. They never had any idea. Keep repeating that because it's so important, and it shows up everywhere. It shows up again here. Who can save him from death? No one. What does that mean? Who would try? So why does he ask his question about the angels? He doesn't need the angels, they can't do anything anyway. Because he's omnipotent. And if he chooses to give up his life to lay it down, who can stop omnipotent God from doing that? Consider those kinds of things. Again, triune question. Anyway, the answer is, and should be immediate, no. God cannot be saved by angels. Cannot. What's his name? Can I save salvation? Oh well, obviously that's a silly question isn't it? It's impossible to save Christ. And there's a double entendre there a double meaning there. It's impossible to save salvation. As you know when he announces himself as the I am that I am John 18:4 through 8 Exodus 3:14 when he says that John 18:4 through 8 what happens to that army? It all falls to the ground. And it can't get up until he lets them get up. He has a really advantage. That's how we get into Mond and gravity. I always wonder what holds them. The one that has control of gravity can make people fall down and keep them there. Omnipotent God does not have need of saving. So, just eliminate that from your thought process. Oh, he's going to call the angels down to save him from death that he's so afraid of. Oh, my gosh. If you have that kind of a, session, a suggestion, uh, if that's your doctrine. That's a deficient statement. Uh, and deficient is a euphemism for, um, that's a kind way of saying stupid. Sorry, not really, fix. sorry. Have no disrespectful views of Jesus God. And that is a very disrespectful view. It's dishonoring. It's it's, it's almost it's borderline blasphemy, if it not full heresy. And I recognize there's an ignorant component here. People don't realize what they're saying, but you need to take a uh, study of what you're saying. And I, I read it all the time, and I hear it all the time. Uh, that position, have prominence. Well, why didn't the angels save him? Ah, oh, they should have saved him. Oh my gosh, that's disrespectful. Begin to look at Christ as he really is. This is an extraordinary, complicated book. And your first inclination is usually, uh, as I said, cursory at best. So pay attention to how complicated all of these things are. If you have a simple answer to anything that Christ says or does, then you're wrong. So why did Christ God ask this rhetorical question that he knew the answer to because omniscience eliminates all possibility that Jesus God wanted an answer? The 12 legions would not have ever been called. Why not? I already answered that. Why 12 legions? Why did he pick up the number 12? Do you think he thought about it? Or, oh, I'm just, oh I'll am pick a number of 12 legions. No. There's a specific purpose for his statement specific persons for the content of his statement. so what are all the meanings of uh, of that particular statement of Christ and they are all within the scope of the unnamed Annas entreaty as well as including Valerie because if he did call down twelve angel, 12 legions of angels and expose them to those who were attempting to crucify him, what have I done? Well not me, but what has been done? veil has gone. So, so effectively, let's repeat some of these problems. Why is there a veil? Why are angels mostly withdrawn, hidden from view behind the curtain, mostly unseen, but sometimes seen? Because they are sometimes seen. Why is our consciousness, our spirit, our breath of life, why can't we see it? Uh, but sometimes... People are convinced they have seen it. And there are places where in the Bible it is seen. That's the revelation we covered last night, 7 9 through 17. That's the multitude. They're all seen by John. He can see them. That's the cry of the martyrs, Revelation 6 9 through 11. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, what would be the consequences if the veil that hides the spiritual from the physical is removed? the curtain raised, there's no restrictions between humanity and the host of heaven. What would happen? How does that affect all kinds of things? Basic question of the day. Uh, Basic questions of the day, There's a better way to put it. Obviously, there's more than one question. Did Adam see the angelic realm? Did Eve see the angelic realm? Here's a better way to ask that question. When was the veil with the cherubim embroidered on it? Now, we have two veils, right? We have the veil thats that I'm referring to that hides the angelic realm, and we have the veil that hides the Holy of Holies. That's an actual physical veil, but it has cherubim on it. So I'm going to keep telling you that I'm going to say both veils, have this relationship to cherubim. When was the veil that I'm talking about between the angelic realm and humanity, when was it placed into service, before or after Eve and Adam were formed? So did Adam see the angelic realm? Did he see all of it? How much did he see? How much did he know about? Adam and Eve certainly saw and heard who? Who? Satan, the cherubim, the anointed cherubim of all cherubims, they saw him. So what's that mean? At the trial of Adam and the woman and the serpent Satan, uh, were there angels there? Were the demons in, in attendance? So those are both angels, but one is fallen, one's unfallen. Were angels at present when Satan was tried in Genesis three? What about Genesis 6? I have angels, the sons of God, saw the daughters of men, and out of that came these mutations, the Nephilim. Did daughters of men see the sons of God? Obviously, I subscribe there to the cosmological view. The sociological view and the religiously mixed position of Genesis 6 makes no sense to me at all. I think they're nonsensical. That's the same as no sense. The sons of God are Jude 6, fallen angels. I think it's obvious Jude 6 must, belongs to Genesis 6. And Christ, following the pattern of the goat for Azazel, Leviticus 16.8, Yom Kippur, this prophecy, where the goat for Azazel goes to make uh, into the wilderness as a testimony to Azazel. Azazel is not scapegoat. Azazel is a name for Satan. So the goat of Yom Kippur goes to Satan and testifies that the sins of Israel have been Forgiven. So that is a prophecy. Uh, and Christ follows that. He goes to the place of captivity of the angels that fell, Jude 6, Genesis 6. First Peter 3 18 through 20. Run out of places here. Christ goes to see these angels that he has imprisoned. And again, this is at Azazel, Yom Kippur. Prophecy. So this answers Valerie's question in part here. Jesus God issues a proclamation to these angels, an official judicial act to these imprisoned angels, the Jude six, Genesis six angels. That's what he does at First Peter three eighteen through twenty. So why did he go there? Christ being omni- omniscient. Well let me throw you the obvious question here is obvious. I mean I'm getting out of sequence here. what did the what did he what kind of presentation was it I'm what did the document? I'm assuming that it's a statutory testament in other words, what I think he has a document in his hand when he does it. What did it announce to those angels? and Christ again, he's omniscient, he remembers everything, so he doesn't really need a document, does he? He, he may have only spoke, but he prefers books on these kinds of events. Especially so when he's the judge. Daniel seven ten and Revelation twenty twelve. He opens books. So did he take a book, a document, if you will, a scroll, if you want to think of it that way, because books are often referred to as scrolls. He opens books and those are really scrolls. So he takes it to the angels and he reads it, in my view. And the event occurred within the entombment in interval. interval. In other words, when he was entombed, the sign of Jonah, the three days and three nights, so I have cru- crucifixion, I'll repeat this for people who never heard it. Crucifixion happened on a Wednesday Passover. A Thursday uh, he went into the tomb, his body did, and he left and got and went first Peter three eighteen through twenty to these angels with a document. So he had three days and three nights. Unleavened bread, it was Thursday, uh, Friday was the day that the women, not knowing that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea already had burial spices made, and it was the first time there wasn't a uh, high high feast day, so they could finally make burial spices, and they could not go on Saturday because that was the weekly Sabbath. So they come on first fruits, which is Resurrection Sunday. So, sign of Jonah. While the sign of Jonah is occurring, one of those aspects of it is he is with those angels that he imprisoned because of what they did in Genesis 6. And what is said about them in Jude 6. And I suspect that Christ did not remain in the, in the angelic pr- uh, prison for all three days. I don't think he did all three days and three nights. It's possible, but he had an altar to cleanse. And I think he assigned certain days and certain times to all of these things. And this is one of the aspects of his entombment. Why he's entombed for three days and three nights. He is going to take care of a few problems. And one of those problems is Valerie's question. It's not on the board. Colossians two fourteen through two fifteen. Where do I have them? Talks about this as well. These two are together. No. Okay. It describes him, Christ, nailing the sins of the saved to the cross. So I think the same pattern exists for the angels. Colossians 2.15 Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That's what it says. That's obviously First Peter 3.18-20 being described in Colossians 2.15 Principalities and powers refers to angels as Colossians 1.16 Angels that Christ created. He's the creator of those angels. Is he sorry he made them? No, Jennifer, he's sorry for where they choose to go. He's sad, he weeps for them. He loves them. No one knows him better that is created than probably Satan and Judas. Maybe Michael, maybe Gabriel. Colossians 2.14 is addressing the proclamation of 1 Peter 3.18 and 19, just to tie that up. Some suggest that the public theater, he made a public spectacle of them. The public theater, a public display, carries the image of a conquering general, uh, a commander parading his captive, uh, defeated adversaries. That's was very common terminology in those days. And they thought, well, that's what this means. But Christ is outside of time. Uh, you can't assign time context to him. It's improper. It's dishonoring. But the prison context, in my view, advocates for a judge, uh, and he's releasing his published final record, which is why I believe Christ read the document or book to those. Those, and again, it conforms with the nailing of the sins to the to, uh, of sins to his cross. I think the book fits with the nailing of the sins. So again, Colossians 2:14 and 15, Second Peter 3:18 and 19, you set them side by side, and they reflect a legal administrative procedure, in my opinion. And if I'm right, duh. Then Genesis 3, 8 through 24, the trial of Adam, the woman, and Satan, is the substrate of First Peter 3:18 through 20. We have first Peter three eighteen through twenty, Colossians two fourteen through fifteen, because of the trial of Adam and Eve and Satan. Does that make any sense to anybody? I hope it does. And the same thing now attaches to Matthew twenty five or twenty five, forty one. The revealing of the lake of everlasting fire as the final destination of Satan and his angels. That's why I've asked in the past, when was that when was the everlasting fire, the lake of fire, when was it installed? Okay. We started late, didn't we? Yeah. Okay, where are we now? What are we doing? Same thing we always do. Pinky. We're attempting to unlock the mysteries of this Bible, of this scripture that is just so amazing. Thus far, the only thing maybe accomplished today is to elevate the impact of the angelic host, the spiritual dimension. It's almost universally ignored. If I've done nothing else today, I've except Bring bringing attention to the consequences of the fall of the angels, what they directly impacted. That's why I asked the 50-50 or 60-40 or 70-30 question. How much have they caused? If you want to think of it that way. Now, God's omniscient outside of time. He doesn't respond the way we think of because he's outside of time. Can't keep saying that enough, but that's the only human way we can think of things. But if I've managed to say how much consequence has occurred because of the fall of Satan and the fall of the one third, then then I've had success. It's the height of imprudence to set aside the fall of the angels, to think it just You can't do it to disregard their contentious state that they're in and say that has no impact on me. I don't have to. Look, you've got this tremendous ladder that's involved here. Christ has not and did not subordinate them. I think that's obvious because of this. He goes to see them during his unleavened bread three days and three nights. Christ has not, did not subordinate them. The case could easily be easily be made that it is the opposite; it is otherwise. Wendy, hi, Wendy. Uh, Wish to participate in the four questions, specifically Valerie's uh, question. I, I answered it for her down here, but we'll get to it here right now. Uh, Valerie. Let's see what you wrought, Valerie. Yes, uh, Valerie did this. He said, "I'll ask the HTRP a little itty bitty question." <laughs> yeah. And uh, Valerie said, "What could possibly, what, what could you, what could possibly come of it?" You said, "And how long could it take to answer my little itty bitty question?" You said, "You should, you should find Valjo and Susie because we're still doing Jude 9." <laughs> Wendy begins with wanting us to know that she is cold in Texas. She says so. Let uh, me find it really fast. It's under 70 today and I can't take it. That's what she said. Sorry, Below 70. Uh, it's under 70 today and I can't take it. We also in Alaska uh, Wendy are below 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, not to be confused with 70 below. Below 70 is not the same as 70 below. We have both here. Uh, What what do we call below 70 degrees Fahrenheit in Alaska? We call it every day, always. So Wendy is not going to be visiting, though she is delightful. Anyway, Wendy was contemplating the meanings of Genesis 3.14, specifically the pronouncement that Satan would eat dust. What does that mean? Is he literally going to have a spoon and he's going to eat dust? Obviously not. On your on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust. Boy, oh boy, what a fantastic statement. Eat dust. How complex is that? It's unimaginably complicated. It's astonishing, that statement. Who made it? Christ made it to Satan. So begin to think, this is so complicated. How can I possibly figure it out? And certainly don't have some simple response to it. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Probably the most misunderstood verse in all of Genesis three, if not all of Genesis. Satan is the recipient of this judgment from Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, the judges, uh, the Judge of all things. John five twenty two, Daniel seven nine through ten. The best way to advance through Genesis three fourteen. What's the best way? Do I solve this? Why would Satan eat dust? Question. What's the best way to do it? You're right. Ask more questions. <laughs> Yay. So let's start with all the days of your life. How long? How long is the is the life of Satan as infinite God so defines it. Note I'm beginning to I'm beginning with a position or the frame of reference that excludes the literal serpent. I'm not talking about a literal snake. I'm talking about the symbol of the serpent or the dragon. If you want to combine combine them, that is Satan, uh, the literal snake. We don't. We do we have any in Alaska? We have very few. I think may, maybe some down by Juneau. There might be some, but we don't have them here. We don't have brown recluse or black widow spiders that they have in Texas. Wendy, Arizona. Well, nothing lives in Arizona. It's impossible. It's too hot. So, that was for Jennifer. So, to rephrase the easy first question, how long does Satan exist? When was he created? When was he formed? When did God know him? Psalm 139, Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you before I formed you. When did God know Satan? That is a very... How do I put it? Difficult question. Because it's a triune question, isn't it? And it's outside of time. That's an intentionally poorly worded question. But again, I'm the HTRP. Existence. Does Satan have existence? Because existence to be existence must be timeless in order to qualify. You know that. We've said it thousands of times. Existence must be timeless in order to be existence. Therefore, statements that attach time or lengths of time to life are defective statements, deficient statements. How long does Satan live is a deficient statement because I haven't put time into it. And notice that I exchanged all your life for existence because the definition of life is defined by him who is life, the life. John eleven twenty five, John eight twelve. He's life. He gets the guy that's life gets to tell you what life means. You don't get to tell him what it means. Our definitions of life are not only immaterial and worthless and usually miscalculated, certainly depthless and shallow. His definition is the only one that matters when it comes to life. He is life. Same thing with salvation. He is salvation. He decides what salvation is. He decides what life is. The church, generally speaking, when I say the church, I mean this. Uh, I almost said something bad. This mess that masquerades as the church, especially in this country, the the church is generally speaking forfeited the the explication of life as it's presented in Scripture. And naturally, when we did that as a church, it happened in the 1960s, the monistic, atheistic philosophers then seized the opportunity. Evil will rush into a vacuum, and the church gave them a vacuum because we stopped defining life as Christ defines it. And that caused this great, that destroyed our academics, our schools, it destroyed our media, it destroyed all kinds of things. And now we've got this god-awful mess We have everything from just pure hatred of Christ to eugenics in this country. And all of that to say, Genesis 3.14, All the days of your life you shall eat dust. All the days of your life. God said that. So don't put your definitions into it. How many days is all the days of Satan's life? That's an intentionally poorly worded statement, H-T-R-P. Infinity, eternity is not a number, it's a concept. Just saying. God promises eternal life, infinite life, for obvious reasons. Now, some might protest. The Protestants will object that the text should have read all the days of your death. Because he has chosen death, or all the days of your existence. And go ahead, HTRP, they're out there yelling at me. What have you to say about that? Huh, huh, huh. I say, I agree with you. That's what the Bible should say. I agree that the text should read existence, because the Hebrew word is ka Oh, isn't that cool? It's actually kai, kai. But that's a form of kaya. And kaya is used in Genesis 1.20, 1.21, 1.24, 1.28, 1.30, and 2.7. Where it is translated as what? Existence. Living being, to be more specific. Living being as God defines living being. He's the one that matters again. It's his definition of living being, not ours. So I corrected my in, in New King James in the margins of Genesis 3.14. All the days of your being, I wrote. Because I know Kajah is there. Which brings clarity to the meaning. Satan, after all, is a living being. And that explains why he eats dust for all the days of his life. Dust is a theme in Genesis 3. The first mention of dust is in the Bible. The very first place it is mentioned is Genesis 2.7. Bingo. Ah, and that is where the physical body of Adam is made from the dust. Something not lost on Satan or the angels who saw Adam being created from the dust. Genesis three nineteen adds some key information. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. You shall eat bread. So I have eat dust and I have eat bread. That's probably a coincidence because omniscience allows for coincidences and accidents and improprieties and all kinds. Never mind. The ground was cursed for your sake, Genesis 3.17, for your salvation, uh, Adam. The ground was cursed for Adam's salvation and Adam was told that. That's incredible. Adam gets to learn something very important right there. Adam learned the plan of salvation, the solution to the lie of Satan during that trial, during his trial. The cursing of the ground being just one aspect. The the, uh, the blood coverings of 321 being another aspect. Everybody thinks Adam is in trouble here. He didn't think so. He rejoiced. He named his the woman the mother of the living. That's rejoice. That's exultant. That's He's thrilled. So what made him thrilled? The ground was cursed for your salvation. So there's a solution to the lie of Satan. Because who got the lie of Satan? Eve did. She believed it. Adam did. He didn't believe it. But did he know the solution? He obviously did not because he ate from the fruit. The remainder of Genesis 3.19 is this powerful, renowned verse. For dust you, uh, you came and to dust you shall return. That's Job 21, 23 through 26. Just in case you don't think that we're in Job. There he is. It looks like Job. Where it says this, Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. One dies in his full strength. One dies in the bitterness of his soul. One dies in full strength. Both lie down alike in the dust and worms cover them. That is in Genesis 2, 7. That is in Genesis 3:17, 3, 3:19. 3, Both lie down alike in the dust and worms cover them. All are from the dust and all return to dust. Ecclesiastes 3:20. And those are very complicated verses. I hope I made, got that through. And all of them ultimately are returning to Genesis 2, 7. So every time you have a dust statement you're going back to two seven. The first place dust is mentioned. Genesis two seven is the canopy of all of this dust. The first mention establishes the frame of reference, the precedent, if you will. Think of it as a legal thing. When I'm going, to, I got a position over here on dust. I go back to the precedent. What does the precedent say? The frame of reference. All dust verses adhere to the precedent. The, and that being the precedent, that being that the body returns to dust at the death of the, of the body, because the body came from dust. But just the body goes back to dust. The breath of life, the consciousness that Anna wants to know about, why can't I see my consciousness? That returns to him who gave us consciousness. Consciousness must come from consciousness, as you know. Ecclesiastes twelve seven. the dust will return to the dust. But the Spirit will return to God. Genesis two seven, the order is reversed at Genesis three hundred nineteen. And all of that to ensconce the principle, the meaning of dust, especially eating dust, as it applies to Satan, the person that is Satan, not the, the reptile. The person. To repeat Matthew twenty five forty one, the lake of fire was made for Satan and his angels. Lake of Fire was made for Satan. Satan is specifically underscored, enunciated. All dusts lead to Genesis 2:7. All dusts are subvert, subvert, uh, subservient to Genesis 2:7. Dust is bracketed and is banded with death. Death has two connotations: the physical death of the body, the first death, and the second death, the Lake of Fire, Revelation 20:14. Do I have Revelation 20:14 on here? Yes, right here. Good for me. So I have two destinations, don't I? Uh, Ultimately. Genesis 3.14, you shall eat dust. That can be reformed to, you shall eat death. Physical death. First death. All the days of your being. I I could say it that way. You shall eat death all the days of your being. And that is a lake of fire reference. Genesis 3.14 is the Old Testament complement of Matthew 25.41 and Revelation 20.14. So when I read Matthew 25.41 and I read Revelation 20.14, I go back to Genesis 3.14. You shall eat death all the days of your being. The two destinations, the new city of life, Jerusalem, Jehovah Jireh Salaam. God will provide peace. That's Jerusalem. Jehovah Jireh Salaam. Contracted is like Gal Goliath. Uh, say Jehovah Jireh Salaam and you get Jerusalem. If you say it really fast. Jehovah Jairus. And that's Jerusalem. God will provide peace. God will provide life. So you have those destinations. Peace or the lake of fire. Life or death. Now, add communion. Matthew 26, 26. Mark fourteen twenty two. I'll just put one of them up here. You got one you also have Luke and you have first Corinthians. Take, what does he say there at Matthew 26 26? What's he say? Take, eat this. What are you eating? You're eating bread. This is my body. Eat the bread of life, he says, John six, thirty five. The true blood that came, the true bread, blood, the 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 true bread that came from heaven to eat, which was a symbol of Christ, the manna, the bread that gives life to the world, John six thirty three. So Christ says, eat life, eat bread. I am the bread of life. Eat this bread. That's me. That's my body. Eat life. Satan to Satan he said, eat death. And that's how you solve Genesis 3.14. Okay. That was fun for nobody.